we got one session left to do together. And by way of reminder, we began by talking about the foundation of a healthy church, which is the Word of God, rather than, especially in our culture, our society, some sort of attractional model based on pragmatism and consumerism. We talked about the church's authority to show that the congregation has the authority in the church, and then sitting within that authority, within that responsibility, are the elders. We talked about membership, the importance of membership, and how to ensure your church has membership that means something. We talked about protecting the church. So if membership is the way that uh, you, you bring people into the church, then church discipline protects the church by removing people who are no longer uh, members of, or no longer professing faith in Jesus or showing that they're no longer uh, following him. And that leads us to church's leadership. So uh, what kind of leaders do we want to have in a local church? What does the Bible say about the leaders we would have in the local church? And we're going to focus specifically on elders. We'll set aside deacons for this time. So what I want to do is take you through what the Bible says about people who would be the elders, the pastors. I'm going to use those terms interchangeably. Uh, elder and pastor uh, point to the same function, the same task within the local church. If I do by mistake use them separately, I would typically mean elders as uh, non-vocational, so they're not paid by the church. Pastors, people who are paid by the church. But according to the Bible, there's no distinction between them. You just have people who lead the church as elders, as pastors. But what I want to do is take you through what the Bible says about people who um, you should select as pastors in a local church. And we'll start with the elder's aspiration, which is to say that an elder must aspire to be an elder. He must desire to be an elder. You can't have people who are roped into the eldership in a local church. And I've uh, talking about this with some of you over the course of the last couple of days is in some churches it's seen as kind of a, a trump card when somebody says, God told me, or I feel called to ministry. And we kind of say, if you feel called to ministry, that's such a good thing. You couldn't possibly get that wrong. Uh, it is important to have an aspiration to ministry, to desire that, but you have to go much, much deeper in evaluating people beyond that aspiration. So it's important that a man aspires to ministry before you make him an elder, but that's just one part of something much more significant. So if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Or First Peter 5, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. And so we see these scripture texts pointing toward this, this notion that a person who would be an elder in the church has to desire it. You can't just draw people in that who have no, no aspiration toward it. So he ought to desire it. That's the aspiration. He ought to be willing to serve in the church as an elder. So not compelled, not roped in, but he's got a real willingness. Not only does he aspire to it, but he's, he's willing to serve as an elder at all and serve as an elder in that particular local church. And then I'd also say he has to have a humility, which means he's willing to hear that he's not going to be an elder in that church. He's willing to hear from the, the people who would evaluate him in the church. No, we don't think you fit the criteria of an elder, or we don't think you fit the criteria of an elder right now. So he's got the aspiration. He's got the willingness 
But he also has the humility. If he, if he doesn't have the humility, if he's demanding, I must be a pastor in this church, um, I will leave if you don't make me an elder in this church. Uh, I'd say he's not showing the kind of humility you'd want out of a man who would be an elder. So the elder's aspiration, and uh, I'm going to read this quote from Douglas Milne here. Becoming a local overseer, another term for elder, is not about promoting one's own interests or seeking power. It is about an individual wanting to serve the congregation by using those particular gifts and qualities which the Lord has given him. Behind the desire to be an overseer should lie a divine awakening and leading, but this desire on the part of an individual must be confirmed by the church on the visible evidence of certain qualities. So the aspiration is good, it's necessary, but it's insufficient. You take that aspiration, I would like to be an elder, okay, now we are going to evaluate you to see if you can be, if we feel the Lord has put that call on your life. So here's some questions you might want to ask as you think about this matter of aspiration. Has he expressed the desire to serve as an elder? In our church, we've got a, a couple of people anyways that we believe have the character of an elder. They just don't want it. They just don't feel that, that call. They don't feel that that's what the Lord has called them to. And so they, we can't tell them to be. We have to let them not be elders, even though we think they could meet the criteria. Is he thoroughly involved in the life of the church, or will he only be involved when he can set its direction? Right? You want to find someone who's all in in the church, and again, not demanding, I'll only really serve this church in the office of elder. And is he willing to humbly hear that the church may not affirm his desire to be an elder? That humility is so important. So that's the elder's aspiration. As you're considering people, um, to call them to be elders in a church, the first thing you're looking for is that he aspires to it. The second thing is the elder must have a certain skill. And it's really interesting, at least to me, that the skill set is so basic. If you were to uh, look at the job postings or job listings for pastors, you'd see the demands people set on them are huge. When a church is looking to call a man, they'll have this huge long list that sounds suspiciously like the job description of a CEO or something like that. But the, biblically, the skill that he must have is very, very basic. It says he must be skilled in teaching. He must be an able teacher. First Timothy 3, verse 2, he's able to teach. And then Titus 1, verse 9 teases that out a little. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So he must be able to teach. He must be able specifically to instruct in sound doctrine and able also to rebuke people who contradict sound doctrine. So he must be knowledgeable. He understands the Bible. He knows Christian doctrine to at least a, a significant degree. He must be skillful as a teacher. He must be able to teach in a way that other people understand and benefit from his teaching. And then this one's so important. He must be affirmed in his ability to teach. So others are attesting he has the ability to teach. He is an able, skillful teacher. I think in a lot of churches, you see people come in and say, I want to teach. And you give them opportunities to teach, and they're just not good teachers. 
They might be very godly people. They might have a great knowledge of the Bible, a great knowledge of Christian doctrine, but when it comes right down to it, they simply don't have the ability to teach. They just don't make the Bible make sense. And so those people should not be elders. Now, a question that comes up is, if you don't want to be the the front guy, the the guy who's preaching every week, do you still need to be able to teach the Bible? You're happy to be a a lay elder, a non-vocational, unpaid elder, And I would say, yes, you still need to be able to teach, but maybe not in the same way. Some people are very good at teaching one-to-one, just instructing people. Other people are very good at teaching to a crowd. And within the local church, I think there's plenty of call for both people. But the basic skill is to be able to make the Bible make sense to people, to help people understand what the Bible says, and to apply it to their lives. So a quote from David Platt here. Elders can't just know the word extensively. It's imperative that elders communicate the word effectively. You get that? It's not just to know the Bible extensively. It's to know it and be able to teach it effectively. An elder must know the word and spread the word throughout the church and from the church throughout the world. He must be able to persuade people with the word, plead with people from the word, comfort people with the word, encourage people from the word, instruct people in the word, and lead the church according to the word. Right? So he's a Bible teacher. He knows the word of God. He's able to teach people what it says and how it applies to their lives. So, again, as you're thinking about elders in your local church, has this man proven a willingness and an ability to teach the word effectively. When he teaches the Bible, do you better understand the Bible and how it applies to your life? Does he make the Bible clear or opaque? And again, I think there's lots of people, they open the word, they teach the word, and you have no idea. They just don't have that ability to teach it. And that doesn't make them bad people, it just makes them not fit to be elders. And does he have a thorough knowledge of Christian doctrine and the ability to defend it. Does he know the word? Does he know Christian doctrine? And if people oppose that, is he able to face that opposition? Is he able to point to the word to show what the word truly teaches? Okay, so we've got the elder's aspiration. He must desire to be an elder. We've got the elder's skill. He must be able to teach. Now, here's what's fascinating to me. There's lots of other things. We're going to go through these passages. There's three passages. There's one in 1 Timothy. There's one in Titus. There's one in 1 Peter. Three passages that describe what an elder must be, How to, uh, well, what kind of man should be an elder in the local church. It's fascinating to me. It talks about aspiration. talks about the ability to teach. Everything else is character. All the other qualifiers are based on character. And not only that, but all of the character demanded of an elder is also demanded of every Christian. So there's no character qualifier that's only for elders. All elders are meant to do is to exemplify Christian character. So D.A. Carson says these, these character qualifies for an elder are remarkable for being unremarkable. Which means elders are to be exemplars. They're just to be an example of the kind of Christian character God calls us all to. They're to demonstrate what every Christian is meant to be. So we can look at these qualifications. I'm going to go through them. And as we look at them, you think about elders, but you also think about yourself, right? All elders are meant to do are to be the ones who are leading the way 
in these character qualifiers. Not everybody can be an elder, but absolutely everybody can and should display the kind of character an elder displays. So what I'm going to do is just the same way we have been, I'm going to look at these different qualifiers, these different parts of the character, show it to you from the Word, and then give you some sample questions that might help you evaluate someone. So the first qualification of character is this man must be above reproach. He must be above reproach. So all of this character, we need to say this, all of this character is possible only through Jesus Christ. Right, that The Christian life involves effort, of course, but this is effort empowered by God. Effort that's made possible through the Holy Spirit. So we, we labor and we strive and we agonize to come alive to Christian character. And all the while we're acknowledging it's possible only because of the gospel. It's not character that saves us. It's not character that makes us acceptable before God. That's the gospel. But character is how we display our response to the gospel. We show that we've come to Christ. We show our love for Christ by coming alive to this Christian character, by changing, by becoming like Jesus. So it's a sign of our deep longing to be like Christ. And the first qualifier is, first character quality is to be above reproach. 1 Timothy 3 verse 2, therefore an overseer must be above reproach. Titus 1, if anyone is above reproach, it goes on, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. What does that mean? Well, it points to a kind of innocence, a, a legal term indicating innocence in the eyes of the law, which means you might bring charges against that person, but the charges won't stick because he has pure conduct. He's demonstrated good conduct. So there's an innocence to that person. No charges can stick against him. Uh, blameless. Some translations take blameless in, in favor of above reproach. So if people do bring charges against him, if they accuse him of something, again, he'll be found without blame. Nobody can attach any wrongdoing to him. Points toward a person who's reputable. His life is so guided by the Bible that there's real credibility to him. Again, if somebody accuses an elder of something, the first instinct of the people who know him should not be, oh yeah, that doesn't surprise me. The, the first response should be, no, that can't be true. I know that man, that can't be true of him. Right? There should be that kind of reputation he holds. And then he's also credible. He's a person who doesn't make the gospel look fake. As you look at his life, as you hear his words, as you look at his marriage, all of these things, he makes the gospel look powerful. He makes the gospel look real. He makes the gospel look like it really does transform people from the inside out. <coughs> we need to be careful, though. Being above reproach does not mean perfect. Right? God doesn't call only people who are perfect to be elders, of course. If there could only be perfect elders, there would be no elders. So God doesn't call us to perfection, but he does call elders to exemplify Christian character, to be above reproach. And Alexander Strauch, who's written a really good book, a number of really good books on eldership, says, what is meant by above reproach is actually defined by the character qualities that follow the term. 
So in that way, above reproach is kind of the, the meta category. He must be above reproach. What does that mean? We're going to tease that out through these other character qualifiers as we go through. They'll help define the term. So questions you might want to ask of a prospective elder and, of course, of yourself. Are there any sins in his life that would bring shame to him, to his family, and to the local church if they were made public? Is this man an open book? Or do you know or do you get the sense that he hides much of the truth about himself? And Does this man have a track record of faithfulness? Can you point to his life and just see a faithfulness about him day by day, year by year? And really stage by stage, phase by phase through his life, as a maybe as a single person, as a married person, as a husband, as a father. Do you see this track record of faithfulness? If you do, maybe you found a man who is above reproach. In Timothy, Titus, 1 Peter, there's a large collection of attributes, and there's some overlap between them. There's some unique ones. Uh, what I'm doing here is I'm compiling them together just for sake of brevity into about 10 different categories. The next one is pure. So we've got above reproach as that big meta category. Underneath it we have pure. So in both epistles, 1 Timothy and Titus, this comes immediately after above reproach. He must be above reproach, which means pure. And so clearly it's very important to the Apostle Paul representing God and writing Scripture that people who are elders have a purity about them. You just think how much a sexual purity about them. And you just think about how much scandal there is in the church in general, in the local church, because of a lack of sexual purity. And so in First Timothy and Titus, it simply says, the husband of one wife. He must be the husband of one wife. Literally, he must be a one-woman man. He must be a one-woman man. doesn't mean he, he must be married. It does mean that if he is married, his marriage is exemplary. It's a, it's a kind of marriage that can be imitated. The kind of marriage that if there's a young, engaged couple, you would say, why don't you just go spend time in that home? Spend time with that couple. You can read books about marriage, and that's great. Go spend time with those people. They'll show you how to be married. You'll see how a husband ought to relate to his wife. You'll see how a wife can respect her husband, how he's won her to himself. He must be devoted, so he's committed to one person. Right? There's a clear love and devotion and commitment from this man to his wife. And then he must be pure, he must be holy, he must be sexually faithful to his wife. So man who would be an elder must be pure. MacArthur says a man who is solely and only and totally devoted to the woman who is his wife. It's a question of his character. He's a one-woman man. Anything less is a disqualification. So either you're unmarried and pure, or you're married and pure. Either way, you're, you're faithful to what God has called you to. So, has this man proven himself to be sexually pure? Do you happen to know, have you seen that he's got wandering eyes or a crude mouth? Does his wife love and respect him? Does his marriage serve as an example of God's design for marriage? Christ right, laying down his life for the church. Do you see some of that in his life? 
And does he maintain good standards with his entertainment? Does he watch smut? I think questions like that can just help tease it out. What's he filling his mind with? How is he behaving publicly and privately as much as you can see, as much as you can tell? Then we come to this, sound and judgment. The third qualifier, right? We've got above reproach. We've got pure sound in judgment. The Bible says he must be sober-minded. He must be self-controlled. He must be respectable. So we're putting those three together. That means there's, the, the key here is a, a kind of self-mastery. He's got this this disciplined life. He's disciplining himself toward godliness. Right? He, he's not one of those people who just doesn't care. He's a man who's really pursuing the goal of growing in godliness, growing in conformity to Jesus Christ. He's sober-minded or clear-headed. He's, he's watchful. He's free from excess. He's free from those wild fluctuations in his thinking and ideas. You know those people who go from here to here in a day? They, they believe this all the way. The next day they believe that all the way. He's not one of those people. He's, he's steady. He's steady. And that trait allows him to keep alert so he can protect himself. He can protect others from danger. He's sensible. He's, he's self-controlled. He's free from... Um, Again, he's free from excesses. He's not flopping all over the place. He's submitting his emotions and his passions to the control of the Holy Spirit. He makes wise and and sensible judgments. He shows restraint. And he's respectable. He lives an orderly life. He's wise and he's prudent in his dealings. Others have respect for him. They've got respect for his character. They've got respect... For his behavior. He's the kind of guy who can read the book of Proverbs and really tell you how to display those traits, how to display that wisdom in your life. Right? He lives an orderly life. The BDNUBLE says an elder must be a person who bridles himself. He must control his internal state, his emotions and so forth, and his outward actions. He's decent in conduct. He's not rash or unthinking, but sensible discreet, and wise. So does he have unrestrained or unhealthy habits in what he eats or what he drinks or in his entertainment, right? Can you see that he's really living a self-controlled life or is he living a life of excess, a life that shows a lack of self-control? Does he exhibit consistency and discipline in the spiritual, devotional, relational, and bodily aspects of his life? Right? Consistency. Discipline. Is he confident in what he believes? Or is he easily swayed by new books, new teachers, or new ideas? Do people seek his counsel when they're uncertain or facing a difficult decision? That's the kind of man you want to look for. People don't even have to think about it. There's no, I need to talk to him. I need to get his view on this. I, I want him to tell me what he, what he believes God would say about this. God, godly character calls us to be sound in judgment, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. The elder must also be hospitable. 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 verse 8 both say he must be hospitable. 
That means he's got, quite literally, means he's got a love for strangers. The Greek word for hospitable indicates just that, a love for strangers. And so in that day before the Holiday Inn, Christians were extended, they were expected to extend hospitality to other Christians. Right? A, an itinerant preacher might come through town or other believers are traveling through town. Instead of making them sleep in a, a nasty inn or a place that was full of trouble, you would invite them into your home. Right? Give them true hospitality. And that word is then naturally expanded to include other forms of hospitality. But really at heart, it just indicates a willingness to invite people into your home. To invite people right in. To invite people in, it's just a way of acknowledging that what you have isn't really yours anyways, right? It's all a gift of God. So opening your home provides a context for relationship, for discipleship, for evangelism. So first, hospitality is a love for strangers. It's uh, placing an emphasis on relationship, building a church community. See this in one guy in our church who's just gotten really enthusiastic about um, creating ministries where men can just get together and hang out. I think that's an extension of the gift of hospitality. It's just very important for him to gather people so they can share relationship. It means discipleship, inviting people into your life to model personal holiness, to model family life, to model marriage, and so on. In our church, we've got lots of young men who didn't grow up with a father figure. So it's such a joy, lots of young women who didn't grow up with a good mother figure. So to invite them into our lives and just let them see, let them see what it's like to be in a stable family. Let them see what it's like to have a wife who respects her husband, a husband who loves his wife. There's so much that can be done by just inviting people into our lives, into our homes. Then, of course, there's an evangelistic aspect to this because inviting people in gives unique opportunities to share the gospel. You invite people into your life, they get to see you in family devotions. They get to see you teaching your children. They get to see and, and experience how discipleship ha- happens in the home, and that can have an evangelistic effect. Alexander Strauch again says, Hospitality is a concrete expression of Christian love and family life. Giving oneself to the care of God's people means sharing one's life and home with others. An open home is a sign of an open heart and a loving, sacrificial, serving spirit. A lack of hospitality is a sure sign of selfish, lifeless, loveless Christianity. Thinking about a man who would be an elder, does he have people into his home for even just a meal? Does he have people stay in his home? I was at a church not too long ago where it became clear very quickly that none of the the people in the church had ever had any of the others into their homes before. I'd say that shows a real deficiency of hospitality and really a real deficiency of love displayed by inviting people into your home, sharing what you have, giving up your comfort, giving up your safe place to invite other people in. Is his family intentional about welcoming others into his home even if they're different from him or perhaps make him feel awkward and uncomfortable? We see this a lot in Toronto where um, we've got a very multicultural church and you might be inviting somebody into your home who's got a very thick accent and you yourself have a very thick accent. So are you going to let that awkwardness keep you apart? Or are you just going to shrug your shoulders and say, come on in, we'll figure it out, right? Or people have very different customs in the home. You're inviting them in. 
do others come to this person when he when they need help, or does he give the impression he just doesn't want to be bothered? All of that can point toward that spirit of hospitality. An elder must be gentle. So First Timothy three, he must not uh, he's not violent but gentle and not quarrelsome. And then in Titus, not arrogant or quick tempered, not violent. So you put these together, there's a clear call away from anger and violence, a call toward gentleness and peace. An elder cannot be hot-headed. An elder cannot be one of those people who's always on the edge, always on the verge of losing control. He must be tender. Right? He must be tender. He must be humble. He must be merciful. He must be gracious. Right? He must know what, what posture and what response is fitting for any occasion. Right? There's a kind of graciousness about him, a desire within him to, to extend mercy to other people. We, we talked about preferences yesterday. He's got his willingness to just cede to the preferences of other people, not to make every one of his preferences stand, not to blow up when his preferences are violated. And this kind of gentleness will be expressed first in the home, right, with his wife and with his children, and then extend outward to the trait. I think gentleness, especially in, in men, is one of those traits that is so, so precious. But maybe we think it's, it's not masculine, right, that we need to be maybe harsh, we need to be tough, we need to be rigid. But man, we love gentleness. We love men who display gentleness when we find them. I think we value that trait much more highly than we think. So he must be gentle, able to control his temper, able to control his response to others, even when they're rude to him or sin against him, whatever the case, he can take it. You're not going to see that fire in his eyes. You're not going to see him start to flex his fists. He'll be patient, tender, sweet. He doesn't lose control physically, verbally. This is the opposite, John Piper. This is the opposite of pugnacious or belligerent. He should not be harsh or mean-spirited. He should be inclined to tenderness and resort to toughness only when the circumstances commend this form of love. His words should not be acid or divisive, but helpful and encouraging. So here's something to ask. Are people afraid to confront sin in his life because they fear his anger or cutting words? Do his spouse or children fear him. I mean, obviously there's a healthy respect children will have for their dad, but do they do that? Do you see that they're afraid that their dad's going to lash out at them? Would his friends and family say that he's gentle, that he treats them with tenderness? Or does he like to play the devil's advocate? Is he just the kind of man who wants a good argument? You've met these people. If not, speak at a conference sometime. They'll come right up after these big conferences. I'll speak, and some guy will come down and just get in my face. He just wants an argument. I've said something. He just wants to fight. That man cannot be an elder. He cannot lead in a local church if he just is always arguing. Everything's always a battle. An elder must be temperate. This one relates to the use of substances. And really, of course, substances relate to character, right? These are all character traits. This is the trait of being temperate. First Timothy says he's not a drunkard. And Titus, he's not open to the charge of debauchery. He's not a drunkard. So he shows self-control around substances that are addictive. 
If he does drink, he's able to do that in moderation, but without drunkenness. If he's following his conscience, he feels free to drink, then he's never doing that to excess. He shows moderation, right? He has convictions. It's important that a man who'd be an elder has convictions, that he knows whether he, he believes it's right to drink, it's okay to drink, or it's wrong to drink. He's got convictions, and he follows those convictions. right? He's not one of these people who says it's sinful, but he himself does it. And then he has a freedom to enjoy what God permits and a freedom to avoid what would be offensive to others. So the kind of guy, even if he has a clear conscience to say, I think it's okay to have a drink, but I'm so willing not to have that drink if it would in any way offend other people. Because as we said yesterday, the freedom in the gospel is not the freedom to indulge, but the freedom to deny yourself out of love for others. Alexander Strauch again says, Drunkenness is sin, and persistently drunken people require church discipline. So a person in a position of trust and authority over people can't have a drinking problem or he will lead people astray and bring reproach upon the church. His overindulgence will interfere with spiritual growth growth and service, and it may well lead to more degrading sins. So you can imagine the the problems that could come out of a pastor with a serious drinking problem just leads into worse sin. So does he have a biblically informed position on whether or not Christians may consume alcohol, and does he live by his position? Simple. Is he able to partake of alcohol in moderation without becoming intoxicated? And would his friends and family agree with that? And are there any other substances he had, he's addicted to? Really, does he look to alcohol or any other substance for the happiness and satisfaction that only Christ can provide? Those are the kinds of questions you want to ask. An elder must also be generous. This relates to finances. First Timothy, he's not a lover of money. Titus, he's not greedy for gain. Peter, not for shameful gain. So he's a man who's open-handed. right? He gives to those in need. He gives to his church. And he's controlled. right? He budgets his money or does whatever is necessary to ensure that he is in control of his money. He's not the kind of guy who spends way beyond his means. He's cheerful. God loves a cheerful giver. So he's the kind of man who's generous with a smile. He loves to give to others. And he's free. He's free from the love of money because he's got higher and better delights. Right? He's not trying to find joy in money. He's got joy in the Lord. And so he holds to his money loosely. He gives it freely. Philip Ryken says, it is a grave mistake to consider wealth a credential for spiritual leadership. Right? A grave mistake to consider wealth a credential for spiritual leadership. Being rich does not disqualify a man from the eldership, but it does not recommend him for it either. What matters is how he uses his money, and especially how much affection he has for it. An overseer must not be a money lover. Would others say that he's stingy or that he's generous? Would they say he loves people or that he loves money? Can you think of times he's denied himself some material pleasure so that he could give money to someone in need or to bless someone else? And does his life show that he's trying to be showy? He's trying to be ostentatious, right? 
Is he trying to accumulate possessions so other people will regard him in a certain way? Because I know, I know people who have tons of money and they live very comfortably, but they're not being showy. They're not being ostentatious. Other people have almost nothing and spend it wildly so they can be ostentatious. They can be showy, right? It really comes down to a matter of the heart. An elder must also be a leader. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. And Timothy and Titus, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So with the elder, the leadership in the home is a qualification toward leadership in the church. It doesn't work the other way around. Too many churches get this wrong, right? The man's home is chaotic, but he's such a good guy in the church, or he's um, such a good teacher that you overlook the chaos in the home in order to recommend him to the church. It, it, you cannot do that. Think about his children. His children must be led. It must be clear evidence that dad is leading within the home. His children must be loved. So he's not a taskmaster. He's not just a boss telling them what to do. He's loving his children. His children must be disciplined. His children aren't swinging off chandeliers. They're not going roughshod all over the place. There's, there's clear evidence that they're disciplined children. His children must be instructed. He's raising them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And his children must be submissive must be clear that dad is loving his children, he's leading his children so that the children are responding to him. Because again, if he can't do any of this toward the two or three or nine children in his home, how can he do that to a church of 80 or 100 or, or 400 people, right? He, he leads in his home, and as he proves his ability to lead in the home, that recommends him to service in the church. Managing the local church, says Strauch, is more like managing a family than managing a business or state. So important. Managing the local church is more like managing a family than managing a business or state. A man may be a successful businessman, a capable public official, a brilliant office manager, or a top military leader, but still be a terrible church elder or father. Thus, a man's ability to oversee his household well is a prerequisite for overseeing God's household. We get this so wrong. We see if he's good in business, he must be good in the church. If he can command the respect of people wherever it is, we must then he, he'll be able to command the respect of people in the church. No, you look to his family. Look to his relationship with his wife and his children, and that recommends him to the church because the church is more like a family than a business, more like a family than a nation. So does he deliberately teach and lead and discipline his family? When his family's in public, are his children out of control? Or do they generally follow his lead and respond to his correction? Of course, children sometimes will get out of control. We expect that. But how does he respond to it? And when his children behave poorly, how does he respond in that moment? Are the children generally in, within control? And is it evident that he cares for his children's spiritual state, that he knows the condition of their souls? We're getting toward the end here. He's mature. An elder must be mature. The Bible has all these calls for us to grow up, 
right? We enter the Christian life immature and unformed. We're meant to grow up, become spiritually formed, spiritually mature. We move from milk to meat. So First Timothy says he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. There's particular temptations that come to new believers. And we guard against those temptations by not letting new believers be elders in the church. They must show a certain kind of maturity. He must be seasoned. right? He's experienced challenges. He's grown through those challenges. He can look back on difficulties in his life and show how the Lord worked through him. He's humble. He's allowed life's experiences to shape him. So he's grown less convinced of his own innate ability and his own superiority, and instead he's depending upon the Lord. He's gentle toward others, out of that humility. And he's knowledgeable. He's grown in his knowledge of himself. He's grown in his knowledge of God. He's grown in his knowledge of how to live a life that's pleasing to him. That's doctrine knowledge, but also life knowledge. Right? You can tell an immature person because he thinks there's easy answers to everything. He thinks every problem can be easily fixed, right? Just take a couple of verses, call me in the morning, and you'll, you'll be fine, right? This kind of man knows. Like he, he understands these things are hard. It takes time. It's hard for people to change. There's a maturity about him. Piper says, The new believer, given too much responsibility too soon, may easily swell with pride. The implication is that part of Christian seasoning is a humbling process and a growing protection against pride. We should see evidences in his life that humility is a fixed virtue and not easily overturned. Are there evidences in his life that he's growing both in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Would you say he's more spiritually mature now than he was a year ago, two years ago? Does he seek the credit and the glory of man, or is he happy to be unknown and unappreciated? You know, many Christians want to be thought of as servants, but they don't want to be treated as servants, right? Do you see that in him? He's willing to be treated as a servant, a servant of Christ and of his church. He must be respected. This refers to the reputation. This is not one. As Christians, we are to some degree responsible for our reputation among unbelievers. That's what this one points to. First Timothy 3, he must be well thought of by outsiders, unbelievers, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So he must be known. Do unbelievers know this man? You're thinking about this man. You, you may call to be an elder in your church. Is he known? Do he spend time with unbelievers? Or is he totally unknown? He must be reputable among those unbelievers who know him. He has a good reputation, not a poor reputation. And there's a consistency to him. So those unbelievers would say, what he does is the same as what he preaches, right? He walks his talk. He's not one of these religious guys who says one thing but acts a completely different way. Now, we know this man is living as a Christian. He's living out his profession, even here in this workplace, even here in this environment. So he's known, he's reputable, he's consistent before unbelievers. Stroke again, he says, non-Christians may know more about the character and conduct of the prospective elder even than the church. Quite often, the prospective elders, non-Christian fellow workers or relatives actually have more daily contact with the church leader than do the people in the church. 
So as we live out our lives in the world, or living around neighbors, or living around unsaved family members, or living in the workplace, those people should know that these, this, this elder is truly a Christian. They should know that he's living out his profession. If there's a hypocrisy about him, he simply can't be an elder. If he's only trying to be a Christian around Christians, he's unsuited to the eldership. So does he know his neighbors? And do they know him well enough to be able to speak to his character and his reputation? What kind of reputation does he have among the unbelievers he works with? Does he work hard and avoid uh, meddling? Think about First Thessalonians where there's calls toward that. Work hard and don't meddle. Don't be meddlesome. You'll be living a good Christian life. And what would his unbelieving family member say is most important to him? Would they say that his life matches his profession? Questions to think about. So that's the elder's character. Carson, D.A. Carson summarizes it this way. The principle is pretty clear. The elder is above all to be a mature exemplifier of the kind of conduct and life demanded of all Christians. So it is demanded of the elder, the pastor is demanded of each and every one of us. The elders are simply the ones who are shown to be particularly strong in exemplifying this. Plus, they need to have the aspiration to be elders. Plus, they need to have the ability to teach. Other than that, they're simply Christians. They're just the Christians who are best exemplifying these traits, this character. So God calls all of us, above all, to be men and women of character, to be above reproach, which means we're pure, we're sound in judgment, we're hospitable, we're gentle, we're temperate, we're generous, we're godly in our leadership, we're mature, and we're respected. And the elders, above all. So how do you... The Bible is clear on the qualifications of an elder. But it's not nearly as clear on how you take a person from a member of the church to an elder in the church, or a person who's a member of another church to be a pastor in your church, which means we operate in freedom. We operate according to a lot of wisdom. We change a lot from circumstance to circumstance, church to church. Where God is not clear on the process, we need to be wise. Right? We need to be very, very wise to look to the Scripture, to seek God for His wisdom, and to move by wisdom. So I think the best I can do is give some guidelines. If there's any other way we can serve, just get in touch with me. I can help share the, the process through which we call elders in our church. And essentially, what I've told you here, we just run them through that evaluation process. We would have elders do a self-evaluation. If he has a wife, she would do an evaluation on her husband as well. Meanwhile, we as elders would be evaluating them. We take all that data and we just talk about it. And maybe we would go to that elder, that person and say, we really feel like you're doing very, very well in these areas. There's a couple where we'd really like to see you work. So for the next six months, we want you to show hospitality. We're, we're really seeing grace in all these areas, but we're not aware of you having ever had anyone into your home, inviting people over for lunch on a Sunday. So over the next six months, do that and We'll just keep an eye out. Or, you know, it might be maybe his children are running a little bit wild or something. So we give him some instruction. We want to help you as, as fathers who have been there. Let us teach you and let's see you model that. And so we do this evaluation process. The elders do the evaluation. The, the future elder or prospective elder and his wife do the evaluation. There's a period of time. Then we identify him to the congregation 
at that point, if things are going well, we identify him to the congregation and they can start to keep an eye on him. And then we have the, the congregation essentially do that same evaluation. As our church has grown, we sort of divide it into people who know him well. We'll do a more thorough examination than people who barely know him at all since within a larger church. That's inevitable. But same thing, just look at the qualifications the Bible lays out, these qualifications of character. Look at that man's life and tell us if what you're seeing is the same as what we're seeing. And if um, we come out from that process and we really feel that we really see that the church is affirming him as an elder, then we simply um, ordain him as such. So this process should be thorough. You can't rush people into ministry. You need to have a thorough process. It means it may be slow, maybe slower than you like, but far better to call the right man than to call the wrong man because you are too hasty. The process must be biblical, right? Focused on what the Bible says, not our dream list of dream pastor, that kind of thing, not, not trying to call a CEO or a businessman. Focus on what the Bible highlights, what the Bible prioritizes. And again, I tell you, if you go and look at the job listings for pastors, you'll see so little about character and so much about skill. These are all the skills and degrees he needs to have. So little about godly character. Focus on character. And then this process should be congregational, which means it's the congregation, right, who's called to guard the gospel. It's the congregation that should be evaluating, the congregation that should be deciding, the congregation that should be inviting that man, those men, to have these positions of authority that fall under their wider authority. I think I'm going to end there. I understand that... um, People here are looking for instruction on calling a pastor to a church. But I think I need to leave it broad outlines like this. I hope the reason I wanted to go through all of these bit by bit was just to show the sheer weight the Bible places on character. That is by far the most important thing in the eyes of God, that whoever you call man or men of character.